Well, good morning, Church at the Red Door. I know some of you are already starting to meet in some of these uh, little home groups, and uh, I welcome you. I'm excited about it. Some of you may uh, be watching a little bit after the fact, but I want you to know that we are excited about this next step. We'll describe it a little bit more at the end. Uh, Pastor Paul and Mary will uh, give us a little bit more insight as to how this is going to all go down, but uh, we are excited about where we're going to go, this next step. And like I've said before, let me repeat myself, there is no perfect alternative. There just isn't a perfect alternative. There are, some would say, better or worse, or, you know, but the fact of the matter is we've prayed through this and we think and this whole, this, this whole shutdown thing and the things that we're going through here in Riverside County in the Palm Springs area, uh, we're just under some really strong constraints. So uh, we care about you. We care about the gospel. We care about gathering, and this is going to be our best attempt at that. So we're ex excited to describe that a little bit more as we uh, at the end uh, here uh, this morning. So uh, anyway, uh, thank you, Randy, for all that you've done. And, and, and Pete and the AV team, I've just got to tell you, Pete and the whole entire AV team, you guys have just continued to step up your level of excellence. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a doable situation. It's not a perfect scenario, but it is a doable situation. Uh, yesterday, I had a little bit of uh, uh, time with uh, Ricky over at uh, the senior pastor at Southwest and we spent a little bit of time together we were actually talking about you know this zoom world this virtual world is so different and I go I know I'm a little bit afraid that somebody uh, you know I'm on a zoom call and I have you know pajama pants on or something that's we just put a shirt on and sometimes you forget to brush your teeth or put on a little bit of cologne I just want you to know this morning that I have put on cologne, my teeth are brushed, I am all ready for you this morning. So anyway, we're excited about uh, where we're going to go this morning. I also want you to know that uh, last week I had suit, coat and tie, and some people like that, some people don't. This week, I'm telling you, I can't even wear a coat because I am all frothed up. Uh, I get pretty amped up with what we're going to talk about this morning, and so I just predetermined I'm not going to sweat through a coat because I'm going to get worked up this morning. I, your pastor is coming to you a little bit ticked off this morning, and you're going to see why that is. You say, well, I just thought we were going through the Gospel of Luke. Well, I set this up for you last week, and we're going to go a little bit more in depth this morning. Hopefully, incredibly helpful for you. So let me again just ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. Lord, uh, we thank you. We pray that your Spirit would guide us this morning into all truth. Jesus, you promised that you would do that with your early disciples, and that's still going on. Uh, speak to us, each one of us. Prepare, equip us. Maybe answer some questions that have been people's minds uh, that are already followers of you. Maybe there's somebody out there watching this that has always just kind of had this uh, idea as a default mechanism, Lord. Speak to them and equip us all to be able to speak to neighbors, friends, family about the authenticity of your word and why we can trust it to be in fact uh, your revelation to men Lord, we're gonna we're gonna need your help this morning we really are so uh, we pray all these things in jesus name amen now again we got into this last week if you'll remember where we've opened our conversation our walk through the gospel of luke we saw last week that there are four gospels matthew mark luke and john uh, Luke is written chronologically, as we've seen in the first four verses, uh, but we picked something up else uh, last week, and I want to go a little bit more deeply into that this morning. So let's pick this back up with Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, as you're turning in your Bible, let me just tell you that Luke was originally actually just kind of one long book, which we would call Luke and the Acts. So you have the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the life of Jesus, uh, what he accomplished on the earth, on our behalf, and for the world. And then eventually you're going to get to, well, how do we get to the letters? And that's the book of Acts. That's the connecting book. And Luke is also responsible for writing Acts. Luke was, you've got to understand, very pivotal God used Luke, Dr. Luke, in such a profound way, but this morning we're going to discuss how did he get what he got, because we don't know that, I think most scholars would agree, we don't, we're not sure that Luke ever met Jesus, but he certainly knew the men who knew Jesus, and he traveled with Paul, Paul had had a revelation of Jesus, Jesus had met him on the road to Damascus, and we're going to try to put that together, and in the process, squash some of the things that are going through people's minds as they think about this Bible. 
Okay, so a lot of people, if you ask them, what is this? Moral code book, it's, a, you know, some Christians believe it's, you know, some, you know, thing that fell out of heaven. Uh, others think, well, it's just, uh, it's just nothing. It's just, it's just a bunch of myth and fairy tale. Others are maybe kind of torn. They don't really know what the facts are. We're going to get into some of those facts and a little bit this morning, what the Bible actually says about its own composition, which is important. So Luke chapter 1, oh, let's reread. We looked at this briefly last week, but 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Now, stop for a second. Remember that. Many people had already undertaken uh, to write up an account of things that they had experienced or heard about Jesus. This was already going on within the first 40 or 50 years after the time of Jesus. Many accounts had been compiled. He said, he's, let me just tell you, the Bible tells us that's the case. Okay. Some people imagine that there are these, you know, old white guys with long robes, uh, three, four hundred years after the fact, coming in, calling through all the various things. There are a bunch of gospels, and Thomas wrote a gospel, and you've heard of these, uh, and, and all, and and they just arbitrarily selected something that would, in some way, empower them or give them, uh, give them a place in history, or allow them to control uh, the people under them. A lot of people see religion as just something, as man's attempt to kind of control people, a power play. So uh, your man on the street thinks, ah, I read the Da Vinci Code, and uh, you know Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, kind of mockingly said, uh, this is a, a fax from heaven. This book is just kind of, uh, the believers believe this is just some kind of fax from heaven. We're going to discuss that a little bit this morning. But you got to understand, folks, Luke is already telling us there are many accounts having been composed. Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us, this is important, by those who from the beginning, from the beginning were eyewitnesses, okay, and servants of the word. So there's, there's two things that we really look back what makes something canonical? In other words, what created the canon? What we have is our New Testament, and quite frankly, he was referring specifically to the New Testament, but the same thing applies to the Old Testament. What do we have here? Accounts where you have men devoted to the Word, and women devoted to the Word, servants of the Word, and eyewitnesses to the things that they're describing. Okay, That's what makes something in the New Testament that's what makes it canonical. That's what makes it valid to include. And there was a culling process that occurred, not arbitrarily. It was actually, you got to understand this, this was for our benefit. This is a big book anyway. It's a huge book. And yet we have what we have today. Why? Because men and women came they, they sorted through what are those things that we know relate back to eyewitnesses, accounts, or those men and women who were actually servants of the word, and we know the word is Jesus. Now it says, it seemed fitting for me as well now, okay, so here's the task of the Gospel of Luke, to do what? Having investigated everything, notice, everything, and he was perfectly positioned to do that. He was an intellectual, he was a, he was a doctor, carefully from the beginning to write it out to you, Theophilus, in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have already been taught. Okay, so that's the setup. Some would just read past that, not see that as particularly seismic uh, in terms of their study. Let me tell you something this morning, folks. This is a seismic statement, and it is why. Many accounts, he culled through it, he curated some of these accounts, he was putting this thing together, and I'm going to say, I'm going to explain to you why that's so important. Are you ready for this? Here we go. All right. So, number one, I want you to understand, Church at the Red Door, that there are two sides of the horse that you can fall off on and we're sometimes guilty of one or the other. And I want us to stay firmly on the center of the horse and ride this horse right on through uh, this life. And it's important to understand, number one, some see this Bible 
as being absolutely nothing but man's fabrication, man's attempt to get to God, some religious text, and they, they don't see any divine hand in it at all. It may give some history, but we, that's not even necessarily trustworthy. Uh, they don't know exactly. Let me tell you something. That's one side that some a big part of our culture falls off on. Now, let me tell you what the other side of the horse would be. The other side of the horse would be much of the church that somehow believes that men and women went somehow into a trance or something, and they just kind of started scribbling out uh, God's words to men, almost like a human fax machine. And they didn't have any input. There was no cultural mix here. And so it is completely a divine book with no human interaction with it. I mean, other than just a, a hand to, for the spirit to compel and to write it out, uh, the, the, that human being had no perspective. It wasn't important. It was merely the words of God. We tend to fall off on that. It, it's kind of the, you know, the book that's fallen from heaven, kind of worked in a mind, and then they just kind of wrote it out without any subjectivity, without anything. And let me tell you something, that also is a mistake. And I'll tell you why that is. Now, some of you will be in awe that I just made that statement. Is he saying this is not inspired? I'm not at all saying it's not inspired. What I'm telling you is that it is a unique, mysterious combination of the human instrument and the divine. We know it's inspired. The Bible tells us it is inspired. Let me read for you here real quick. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Why do I read that? Because it is so important that you don't go into the marketplace of ideas and try to bring a defense of the gospel in a way in which the Bible itself is not even making a defense. It's important for you to understand that this is a unique, profound combination of both the divine and the human coming together in the Bible. And both are important. There is cultural context. There is opinion and idea that work through the mind. Yes, it's inspired. It is divine. Now, I happen to be of the belief that this book is completely inspired, gives us a perfect picture of Jesus. You may not be there yet this morning, but I want you to know that the Bible itself doesn't argue for the removal of the human element. It just doesn't do it. I mean, here Luke is curating many accounts that have already been composed. Don't let that freak you out. And let me tell you something. This is very similar to what we have in Jesus himself. How we fall, on, we fall off on one side of the horse or another. Jesus is God. Is that true? Absolutely true. Jesus was a man, fully a man, subject to the same temptations we are, yet without sin. Is he a man or is he God? Yes. I mean, and it's a, it's a mystery. It's the combination of the human and the divine element coming together in this strange way uh, from our perspective. How could he be one? And people tend to fall off on one side of that horse the same as they do the Bible itself. It's a very similar correspondence. It's mysterious that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It is equally mysterious that the Bible is fully part of the human element and yet fully divine and inspired. I want you to get this down in your soul so that you're not trying to make a defense with people, friends, or places. That And let me tell you something. You don't think they're asking these questions. They are. If they thought this was fully divine, they'd be reading it. They'd be, they'd be right here with us possibly this morning just saying, I've just got to have this. I've got to ingest this. I've got to eat the scroll, uh, so to speak. I, I, I've got to have this. This is the divine world. This is something outside of time and space that has now invaded humanity. But we can argue that there's not a human element in the Bible. And I'm going to show you a few of those things as we move forward. Okay, so I want you first to see what the Bible says, I think, about itself. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. Listen to this. The words 
of the Lord are pure words. It's divine. These are, I believe these are the Lord's words. I absolutely do. But where do you find them? As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So the psalmist is giving us an idea that these are divine words, but they are what? They're tried in a furnace on the earth. On the earth. They're of the earth as well. So they're both divine and they're of the earth. And that's what he's given us a picture of. It's working, I believe this is a picture of God's divine inspiration working through the human vessel, which is man. And then we get a clear picture, but it's tried seven times. It's it's perfect. Even though the human instrument's not perfect, that that comes out is a perfect reflection of God's will. Now, I'm going to have uh, Daryl and Cece Hume. I just want to thank the Humes for all their service to Church at the Red Door. Cece has extended himself, herself, Daryl. They have been such servants of you, of this community, and I am very pleased that they're going to read this next passage for you. So take it away, Daryl and Cece. Good morning. We're Daryl and Cece Hume coming to you from our home in Indian Wells. Uh, we managed to survive a long, hot summer down here in the desert, but fortunately we were able to get out of here for the entire month of August uh, as we took our annual road trip north, visiting friends and family in Oregon and Washington and around Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. But uh, as many of you are returning to the desert, our snowbird friends, uh, we finally have some very comfortable weather on the horizon here. So looking forward to a great season. Cece's going to be reading this morning from 2 Corinthians, verses 6 and 7. For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Yes, amen. Uh, we feel very blessed to be a part of Church of the Red Door. We consider ourselves founding members since we've been, been at the church from the very first uh, day we opened. And uh, we were fortunate to meet Jeff several years ago and followed his ministry. And it's just been uh, gratifying to meet so many so many of you uh, at the church as the church grows, and we look forward to a strong future. So at this point, let's uh, turn it back to Pastor Jeff for some enlightening teaching. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Humes. I appreciate that. I, I've missed seeing your face and giving you a hug. I really do, as I do all of you. But remember what they just read. It's what? It's the treasure, this treasure, this this gospel word is in earthen vessels. We got to understand that this is this was always God's plan. Okay, so let's go back to the Gospel of Luke and let's not freak out about the reality that there were multiple accounts. Luke was drawing his information. Now here's the part that scares people. We don't know where all those sources came from. So the conspiracy uh, theorists all just give rise to these conspiracies. Oh, well, we don't know where he got this, and this could have been some uh, you know, guy that had no idea and had these uh, manipulative ideas. Well, I'm going to set that to, I'm going to put that to bed, I hope, this morning. Uh, for many of you in your own minds, that's just an absurd thing. I'm just telling you right now, if you watch uh, cable television and the Discovery Channel and this channel, that channel, all these different things, talking about, oh, the, we found the real Jesus, or we found, you know, the Bible is... I mean, these things have no basis at all. There have been attacks on this book for 2,000 years. Everybody's given it the... Uh, given it a swing, swing, tried to knock this thing out. They have been unable to do so. Still the most popular book by a gazillion times. We've talked about this at, in messages past. There's nothing, any, there's nothing even close to the Bible. Let me tell you something. There is something divine in this book. Otherwise, we wouldn't see it sell like it has and have the impact on people's lives that it has. So where were Luke's sources? Well, most scholars, I alluded to it last week, some say, well, he probably drew on Mark. Mark clearly was written maybe 10 years or so before Luke did his account. He drew on some of Mark's accounts. You're going to see some parallels between the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark. Was that, was that 
wrong for him to do? No. Who is Mark? Mark was essentially the writer for Peter. He's basically, we could say Mark's gospel, but it really was Peter's gospel. Uh, and then Mark was involved in it as well. And so we, it's clear that Mark probably was a source. I think, I say probably, I think it's very clear that he was a source for Luke. Uh, there were a couple of other sources. One named Q, we, they kind of, scholars say Q, which is the German word for source. Uh, it was kind of an unknown source. We don't know a whole lot about it. And then L, uh, something that Luke knew about, a source that Luke knew about, but but we don't know what specifically those sources were. So that w most scholars say probably at least three sources, and then you see hints of Matthew in there and other things as well. So there was some kind of corresponding overlap of the Gospels. Is this strange? I want you to think about something for a minute. If we were all going to come together and tell a story, let's say something really wild happened at church at the Red Door, and, and most of us were in the room, and some were not, some were on a vacation or something, and, and then we sought to begin to compile something, and then there was one guy that was really an intellect there, and he said, I want to really get an exact picture of what happened that day at church at the Red Door. And so he began to go back and interview some of the witnesses that were there and compile this. And then there were some other sources that had been written and he, he talked to them a little bit about it. And all this kind of came together. There were different takes on it. There were different perspectives that were had. Some were talking about what happened, you know, with the pastoral team and how they responded. Some people maybe talked to, about the security team. Some maybe saw a different angle and what the vibe was in the room and the, the, the impact it had on the people. And then all of a sudden you would put all that together and then you wouldn't come back and say, well, that, that's ridiculous because there are too many sources there. And this is, well, that's a facts dropped from heaven mentality. Uh, the human instrument is part of it. It's the perspective of those divine word through the human instrument. It, they, they, they're going to draw perspective. And we should consider that not as something that challenges our faith, but something that emboldens it. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's called multiple attestation, right? So where, where we get multiple accounts that saying essentially the same thing, it, it should say, wow, this has really happened. If it was just one source, right? And you just got one document. And you go, what, what did the other people say that saw this? What was their, what was their perspective? That would give you, or give rise in me to say, well, that's a much more, that's something I can really trust. It's just like in a crime scene. You want multiple witnesses. Now, they may tell slightly different stories, but it actually gives rise to, well, this event really happened in this way. I know this witness said this, and this witness saw that, and this witness was looking at that car, and this witness was looking at that person who ran out over here, and this witness was talking about it was raining, and that witness didn't mention it. Let me just tell you, when you get multiple sources saying something, you get a broader picture of what actually happened. Don't be freaked out about multiple sources, even sources we're not familiar with. Now I want to go back and, and challenge you with something, and I have seen this done with the Bible Project guys. I thought it was fantastic. He asked the question, where was the first time that the Bible actually talks about the Bible being written? You know, it's a strange thing. And so I, I might just kind of throw out that quiz for you this morning. When was that? Well, I don't know what your thoughts were. Maybe some of the Ten Commandments or this or that. Well, you know, it's actually Exodus chapter 17 when the Bible first talks about the Bible being written as we have it. Certainly what we would call the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 and 9, and then verse 14. Listen to what it says. Very strange story. Uh, it's a story about the fight of these uh, people, the Amalekites, and they were in the land, and, and Moses was up on a mountain, and every time he would raise his arms... Uh, Israel would begin to win the battle, and every time his, he would get tired, he was an older man, you know, he'd get tired and his arms would start to droop a little bit. Uh, they would lose the battle, so they were propping up his arms. Very strange story. I, I think it's symbolic of some very powerful things. Uh, my own personal view, it's just my view, is that it was a picture. Here's Moses, a type of Christ, up on a mountain with his arms outstretched. What does that look like? Well, it looks to me, it looks like the cross. And when we're looking to the cross and Jesus dying for us, we win the battle. Uh, the deeds of Satan are conquered. And so that's a picture of that, but that's just a sidebar. So let me read this, verse 8 and 9. It says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of a hill with the staff of God in my hand. Okay, fine. So that's, there's the story, and they tell the story. 
But then here's the interesting part. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So here was God invading human history, a supernatural account, and uh, it occurred. And then, are you ready? The facts comes down out of heaven? No. I mean, what do you do now? Well, I'll just, just go, go write it down. Well, well, that's not too exciting. I mean, this occurred. Now, Moses, I'm asking you, go write it down. Okay, that, how do we get the Bible? That's what occurred. God invades history. He gives insight into people that watch what God is doing in the earth. And then they, uh, you know, this is a unbelievable, they, they, they write it down. So they went and wrote it down. Okay, so the Bible is telling us how the Bible came into existence. Watch what I did, now go write it down. Wow, it's amazing. Now, something similar happens again with Jeremiah. Let's talk about this as well. By the way, I'm, I'm going to go into this. But in Exodus 24 as well, if you're taking notes, uh, verses 3 through 8, he also tells Moses to go write some things down. Okay, so we get that second picture. Now, let's go on to Jeremiah. We're just doing this very quickly. I'm trying to take a, a, a very broad subject and kind of condense it down a little bit like the Bible. Very broad subject, kind of condensed down so it's readable and and eatable, if you will, edible, I should say. Jeremiah chapter 36, one through four. Here's, what, here's the story. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Okay, so the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah. Who's Jeremiah? He's one of the great prophets, one of the major prophets in Israel's history, an extraordinary human being. In fact, the Bible says that God knew Jeremiah had called Jeremiah even in his mother's womb. Jeremiah was a called man. Now he's speaking to Jeremiah. He's saying, take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah. There were split kingdoms at this point. And concerning the nations. Okay. This is a big task. From the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day, Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man may turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. Now before you, I mean you got to catch this. Jeremiah had been in ministry well over 20 years now. Can you imagine the Lord comes down and says, okay, I want you to take your life, the last 20 plus odd years, and everything I had ever spoken to you. Now I think back about the things that I feel the Lord has spoken to me and to Laura and our family, to our community uh, at Links and our church at the Red Door community and all that. I think all the work, write down everything I've ever spoken to you. And Jeremiah's just gone, are you kidding? I mean, just write it down. And I want you to go give it to King Jehoiakim. What a task. So here's the rest of the story. King Jehoiakim gets it. It said it's in the ninth month. It's in the winter. It's in the winter. He's at his winter house. So he had multiple homes like many of uh, Church of the Red Door folks. So he was in his winter house and he's sitting there by the fire. And uh, the scroll that Jeremiah has labored over with Baruch, who was actually doing the writing, was brought to him. And what did he do? He reads it. He doesn't like what he reads. He takes the knife out. He starts slicing it up and throwing it in the fire. Now, you got to understand, they didn't have copy machines and all that. This was an extraordinary undertaking. They finally get it in its form, and they finally get it to the king, and he starts slicing and dicing and throwing it in the fire. <laughs> are you kidding me? What were these words? What did this look like? I mean, these are, this, is, this is Jeremiah's words from the Lord. So what's the response to that? Well, if you go down to verse 32, very simple. Now catch this. Then Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the scribe, and he wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the book, which the king of Judah had burned in the fire. Now this, this insertion is wild. And many similar words which were added to them. 
So is this the is this a fax from heaven, as Dan Brown would mockingly say? I mean, no. It's well, what was in the original? I mean, was that not inspired? And now you get you press forward, and this this new one is is inspired. But who, what are these many words were added to them? What about the original? What about that? And now many people realize that there are a few Jeremiah's different editions that are kind of floating around out there. And some people start to read this. I remember early in my own my own study, as I started to read some of this higher criticism, which is a technical way to go back to extant manuscripts and try to determine their validity and this and that. And it gets very deep and all that. I said, man, I don't know if I can trust this thing anymore. I mean, different editions, who's copying what? I mean, I, I, and I tended to move towards the facts from heaven mentality. I fell off on that side of the horse, not recognizing that the human instrument was deeply important. So what do we do with that? Well, you've got to understand that they have done us a tremendous service, the, the, the curators of the Bible. So let's first talk about the Old Testament. What is, in fact, the Old Testament? The Old Testament that we know, 39 books that are all contained, uh, we have a little bit different order than the original order, but Jesus actually, as we'll see in a minute, actually confirmed there, this three-part of the Torah, okay, of the Bible, of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. Now, Jews would call this the Tanakh, which is merely an acronym. T, okay, for Torah, Tanakh, and then this little A is silent. It's a, well, I won't get into the Hebrew here. But then N and then K, the Tanakh. That's how it says. So T-N-K. That stands for Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Now, the Nevi'im is just the Hebrew word for prophets. Okay, so you have the you have the law or the Torah. You have the prophets. By the way, when you think of prophets, you've got to understand that uh, there, there's a portion of the prophets that uh, are, we wouldn't consider prophets. We might consider it history. Samuel and, and judges and kings and, and some things like that. Now you're going to say, why are those, why are those prophetic books? Well, for the Jew, from the Jewish perspective, they were prophetic. They were recounting history, but they were recounting it through the eyes of the prophets. So the Nevi'im, the prophets, included the, the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and then these early books that some would consider historical, at least from our perspective. And then the, the Ketuvim is essentially everything else. Okay, So that's our Old Testament. Now, what does the Old Testament say about itself? That's important to understand. Does it also talk about other you know, mysterious sources that we don't know about? The answer to that is yes. Folks, this is not a secret, that a dark secret, like these secret societies where these power players, you know, come together and they formulate a religion. The Bible itself talks about other sources that we don't know about. That's so important for you to understand. I want you to take you now to Numbers chapter 21, verse 14. I'm going to give you a few examples. And I'm just going to, briefly, it says, Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. What is the book of the wars of the Lord? We don't know. But here is the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is talking about another source that we don't have access to. We don't. So the Bible's saying this is chronicled in the book of the wars of the Lord. Joshua 10.13 is an example. Is it not written in the book of Yashar? Who's Yashar? What's the book of Yashar? They're, they're talking about another possible source, or at least another, that we don't have. There are many sources. Why? Because God fills the cosmos, folks. God is everywhere. Of course, there are many compositions that would speak about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that doesn't mean that every source that talks about God is valid or real, or of course not. That's not what it's suggesting. But for the Bible itself, it's talking about the, the what is this? The book of Yashar. And then in 1 Kings 14, we have three different things in, in the book of Kings. Uh, verse 19 says, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Not talking about what we would consider First and Second Chronicles. Or verse 19, uh, what about the history of the kings of Israel? 
or the history of the kings of Judah. And then verse, and then also the books of the Acts of Solomon. Well, what is that? It's not referring to something that's in the Bible. What I want you to get from this is that this is not some dark little hidden secret. The Bible is telling you that this is a this is a condensed, thank you, curated by prophetic men and women who love the creator of the universe to put it down into words for the entire Bible. I mean, for the entire world. Can you imagine if everything, every edition, every copy, every take, everything had been put, this book would be this, it would be bigger than this. I mean, imagine what that would look like. In fact, John said that even if all the works of Jesus should be put together, not all the books in the world could contain everything that Jesus accomplished. I mean, what would that book look like? Five feet high? How would you get a Gideon Bible in a hotel? If it, I mean, you just couldn't do it. They have done us a great service to call through and, and put this together. There is a human element in that, but is it divinely orchestrated? I believe, this is my faith, Absolutely yes. Why? And I'll, and I'll talk about that a little in a minute. So I want you to get this understanding, folks, with Old Testament, Torah, okay, Nevi'im, the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, which is essentially everything else, Psalms and Job and Ecclesiastes and, 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 and elsewhere. So it's important that you get this. And by the way, this is so critical that you understand that this was, again, the Old Testament itself was codified. You heard me say this over and over over 200 years in advance of Jesus. And let me, let me make this additional point about that. When all this came together, the Jews uh, came together, a very unique people. You say, well, you can't trust. Some of these were stories that were handed down and told later, and, and, and some of them were oral in the early stages, certainly oral. All the, all, everything would have been oral prior to Moses. And uh, so we can't really trust oral stories, and they may give you the whole, you know, kind of concept where I tell you something, you tell him, you tell her, and she tells him, and it gets back to you, and it's like totally different. See, you can't, we can't even do that in a room together. Now you're talking about oral traditions. Maybe that's the case, but not for very significant events in my life. I, could, I can guarantee you uh, that there are significant moments in my life where there is multiple attestation. People around me saw it, and, they, and we described maybe a different perspective but those oral traditions are passed back and they're very, very entrenched in people's mind and very accurate. It's important to understand that. So these oral traditions are powerful, extremely powerful. So again, how did this thing come together? Well, you gotta understand that they were all understood and adopted by all the Jewish people. Uh, you gotta understand there were many sects of Judaism that couldn't stand one another, but they weren't arguing over what was at that time their scripture, what we would again call the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Everyone agreed. The Essenes agreed. There, we have writings that still talk about this agreement. We have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them. There was a deep agreement well in advance of Jesus that this is our, though curated and put together, and, and this is our text and then Jesus gives support for that. How so? Well, I'm going to take you, we're getting ahead of ourselves in Luke, but I think it's important for this conversation. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Listen to what Jesus says. He said, and he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you, which I was still with you, that all things which are written about me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. He said, all these words which are written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, in the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms. The Psalms are the first in the order of the Ketuvim, the rest of the writings, the Psalms are the first. So he just says Psalms, but he's referring to the entirety of the Ketuvim. And the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus is saying everything that had been written was all about me. Everything in the Torah, everything in the Nevi'im, everything in the Ketuvim, they were all pointing to me. Now, folks, and well, I'll wait for my summary. Give me, give me, let me work through a little bit more material here before we close this morning. I want you to know that right there is what's kept me in the ball game, if you will, of Jesus' followership for multiple decades now. Is what Jesus just said there. Everything I've read in the in the Tanakh, 
points toward Jesus and it was codified and written and everything was put together so far in advance of Jesus that he's the only one that could have ever fulfilled everything fulfilled that everything that's been written and I'll, I'll refer to that in a minute. So what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say about itself? Okay, that's important to understand. Well, we know there are four Gospels. That's the construction. There's the, there's the Acts. There's then the letters and the pastorals that were written primarily by Paul, but not exclusively, also by Peter and John and others. And then finally, the Revelation or the Apocalypse at the end, some refer to it. That's the composition of the New Testament. Now, what is the Bible, what does Paul say a little bit about what makes a New Testament canonical? I'm going to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Are you hanging in there? Come on, hang in there. This is not boring. This is this should invigorate you. There's, there's great confidence. Don't read and watch this goofy stuff on television that has absolutely no basis in fact at all. All this speculative nonsense about Jesus being married or we can't trust this or uh, you know all these secret societies and everything. There's no validity. There's no secret here. Here's what the Bible tells us about its own composition. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I told you I was going to get worked up. I mean, so you just shouldn't catch you off guard here this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to what Paul says. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, us being the human part of it, God's message through us being the inspired part of it, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. Okay, so God's work through the human instrument, and how do we know it's divine? Look what it's doing in your lives. I mean, at the end of the day, the thing that is the most telling about why this is not just a fabrication of men is the impact that it has on people's lives. 2,000 years, just like McDonald's, billions served. Lives are transformed by this book. People don't forget its words. It's different. He, Jesus taught with authority. That is what they said during his lifetime. It's powerful. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.15. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. It says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Now catch this. The traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Okay, so there were two sources that they were relying on. Letters that came from the original eyewitnesses or the apostles that made them canonical, but also a lot that were oral traditions that were passed down to them. Now, you got to understand, what might be an oral tradition in the Old Testament? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I referred to it, uh, I think, before, but the Passover meal. Okay, so that was, is that the word of God? Yeah, practiced over and over and over by the Jewish culture. So in a way, they were eating the story, as, as I've heard it put before. They were eating the story. And that is just as valid a way to pass down evidentiary evidence, evidence uh, that is awesome and very reliable. Uh, telling the story over and over and over and over and over. Not too different than we would have Thanksgiving or whatever and going back to the pilgrim. Is it, have I read everything about Thanksgiving? No, but I know the traditions passed down and what we eat and all those kinds of things. And you see something similar there. So that's not unusual, and that's what essentially Paul is saying. Now, before I conclude here this morning, I, you need to understand that it's, <laughs> I don't know everything about every ethnic group, every culture, everything, but I do know a lot about the Jewish people. I've studied it. I, many of you know I serve on a seminary board in the Middle East. They are a different kind of people, and gloriously so, Okay. Their capacity, their intellect, their, the, the beauty of what they did. How, how can we trust the Jews to give us this? Sometimes I, I don't like the determination. You know, the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible, and then you got the New Testament. Well, wait a minute. The whole thing is the Hebrew Bible. The Jews wrote the Old and the New Testament. Now, Luke might not have been Jewish, but his sources were Jewish, okay? So other than that, other than the potential for Luke, that everybody was Jewish. This is a Jewish manifesto, if you will, about the kingdom of God. How can we trust them? Well, they were a wholly different kinds of people. They didn't have social media and Twitter and this. They didn't have short attention span theater. This was their only source of media growing up. Even during the time of Jesus, everybody, you know, they didn't have 
books and things. So the scrolls would have been in the local synagogue and they would have come in and, and very you know, lovingly and, and, and genuinely uh, looked through these uh, scrolls. Many young men had everything memorized. We've talked about that before. Certainly the Torah completely memorized the first five books. And even in the entirety of the scriptures, many had them entirely memorized. Can you imagine what we could do if we'd get off social media and things? And, and television, I'm pointing the finger at me too. What could be accomplished? Uh, they were a different kind of people. So when they talked about an oral tradition being passed down, don't think of it like just a tweet out there in space and it's fake news or this or that. Who knows what it is, where it came from. No, 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 no. Understand the calling on the Jewish people. I'm going to give you one example. The Jewish, let me tell you, the Jewish conduit was perfect. With just exacting precision. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. This is very much part of the Torah, the law. Listen to what's being said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. Now, they did because the, the Torah was very important. Impress. Now, he said, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. How will they do that? How will they do the imprint? Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. So the oral tradition. And when you lie down and when you get up, constantly uh, reaffirm, reaffirm. Just what we do when we come together on Sunday mornings. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, they had done what God had requested of them to be the conduit eventually to the world. I don't think there's any other people group on the, on the planet that could have pulled this off. Now, granted, it was the sovereignty of God. It wasn't just because of their faithfulness and their, the wonder, but they were a uniquely called people that produced this. And yes, in the end, it was condensed. And there may have been multiple editions, as we even see in the New Testament. Uh, it doesn't matter. Even cur the curation of these events and these texts and these words and calling through them to find what's authentic is also and can be part of God's inspiration. It doesn't have to just be the writing. It can actually be part of the inspiration. Now, I hope you're getting this. I hope you're getting this. So I want to say this in conclusion this morning, okay? Why am I so persuaded? What, what deeply persuades me? There's a few, just a couple things. Number one, it's changed my life. Changed how I view the world. And now that I understand it, when I view the events in the world, sin and destruction and despair and suicide and war and glory and beauty and everything, it's all rooted in the Word. It gives me a holistic framework in which I can view the, the place that I live called Earth and all its glory and the majesty of the mountains and everything else to all of its underbelly and all of its cor corruption and, and corrosion and poison. And it explains it. Okay, so that's one reason. It's changed my life. It gives me a perspective of the world. And then lastly, if it finishes the story. You know, even I, this is something I do not understand with my Jewish friends. Let me just be very clear to you right now. The whole Old Testament, the Tanakh, it builds. It starts with the collapse of human civilization and the sin that enters the world. It starts to promise a forever king. A king is coming. A king is coming. The Messiah. The Messiah. I don't think they could have possibly put it all together to understand that God was going to have to enter the human the human uh, stream, God take on human flesh and actually die because he would have been the only one worthy of the perfect sacrifice. But this king is coming, this king is coming, this king is coming. Then he finally finished with Malachi writing some three to 400 years. We call it the silent period between the end of the Tanakh and the beginning of the Gospels, which is where we're taking off. And let me just tell you what happened this interim. Well, a lot happened, but... It's like the story ends. The Messiah's coming back. The Elijah's coming back, they say. And, you know, and here's this. And it's just like, it's, okay, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. And then a silent period, okay, here it comes. And then, and then 2,000 years later, nothing. The story. Like they're building to the, you know, it's like telling a joke and getting right to the punchline. And then the, and then the, com the comedian goes, uh, 
Okay, see you later. Thanks a lot. And walks off the stage. That's what's happened. The reason that I'm so persuaded that this is inspired is that the New Testament completely gives end, not the culminating end of the story, but it gives us the epicenter of the story. The king has come. His name was Jesus. In a way many didn't expect, but that the prophets had foreseen. Mounted on a donkey. Dying on a cross. Being a light into the nations. You know, my challenge to my Jewish friends has always been the same. If not Jesus, who? Who among the Jews would have ever been able to be set themselves up over the last 2,000 years and say, this is the light unto the nations? Where nations, every tribe, every tongue would come and say, this person, this God-man changed my life. Where are they? Where are they? Where's the end of the story or at least the next step of the story? That's why I'm persuaded that this is divine. And then lastly, I simply say this. How would you have done it? How would you have revealed yourself to a fallen humanity? I mean, in your holiness, understanding the holiness of God, if you just came down and, and addressed humanity, everybody would have fallen dead because holiness and unholiness can't reside in the same place. I mean, what, what would have happened if God in all of his glory and power would have come back? Would you have done it? Like, okay, every 20 years, I'm gonna come down in a UFO and I'm gonna park myself over where? Where would you have done that? Would you, New York or London or, you know, Hong Kong, where, where would you have come? And I'm gonna shout out, you know, this. Well, you don't think we'd have fabricated some long tale about just aliens? We wouldn't, we wouldn't refer to that as God. Would you, would you have done magic tricks? Would you have done, well, how would you have done it in a gentle way where you didn't crush your creation? How would you have come up with your path to bringing salvation to the earth? Well, the more I read this, the more I say, this is the perfect, this is a perfect solution. This is it. People can still reject it. They can go into a hotel. They can open it up and see a Gideon Bible in there and they can close it and say, I don't want anything to do with that. He's still, he's still giving you your ability to make all the choices you want to make in life. It comes to you gently, just as the Bible says. Do it with gentleness. When you tell the gospel, do it with gentleness. And perhaps God will give them the same kind of salvation he's given to you. Folks, if you understand the beauty of how this thing has been put together, curated, put together, maybe different editions, different things, but finally put together as we have it today, you'll be able to go out and really make a, make a statement in the marketplace. But in the end, it's about love and it's about this has changed my life and this, Jesus, is the word. So I hope this, now this first four, four verses, just understand the Bible has said about itself, there's no dark secrets, there's no men in white hats sitting in some dark room smoking old stogies and making up stuff and, and uh, trying to pull a power play. This has been life-giving for 2,000 years and it will continue to be. <clears throat> so... That's my, this morning, and yeah, I worked up a sweat here, and I'm glad I didn't have my coat on, and I miss you. Folks, I Church of the Red Door, Laura and I miss you so much. We can't stand not gathering, but we do think we have a reasonable next step, and now I'm going to pass it to Pastor Paul and Mary, and let them describe in a little more detail what we're hoping to see flourish over the coming weeks. We love you, Church of the Red Door. Have a great week.